0: here we are. You've taken our lives by your Spirit. You've captured our very hearts by the power of your Word, working by your Spirit because of what Christ has done. And so here we are. And in response to that, we lay before you all that we are, most especially now our minds, that you would enable us to think, to follow, to think rightly about who you are and who we are and who we are in relationship to you, and and Father, that you would work, therefore, in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight uh, through Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Hebrews in chapter 13. Hebrews in chapter 13, please. I want to read verses 20 uh, uh, through 21, just verses 20 and 21. The word of God. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is a very familiar passage to us, at least those of you who come here regularly. It's familiar at least for two reasons, one most especially. Uh, Familiar, I trust those of you who were here Easter Sunday might realize that I fast-forwarded our work in Hebrews. Uh, We were in chapter 11 at the time uh, to chapter 13 so that I could pick up this little expression, um, uh, 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 who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. That was a great Easter passage, so I plucked that out and, and took it. Uh, it gave me the best of both worlds, at least in my mind. Number one is it enabled me to stick with something in Hebrews. I like to, as you know, uh, stick with things since we've been in Hebrews since a year ago, April. Uh, and I thought we were going to finish this Sunday, but we're not. But um, uh, still, one more, I think. But um, uh, but it also gave me the gave us the opportunity to. Um, recognize and respect the traditions of the church, which we like to do as we celebrate various seasons like Advent and and Lent and Holy Week and so forth. So on Easter Sunday, we picked that expression out of verse 20. But I think more familiar uh, to us is this passage because it's one of the uh, half a dozen or so benedictions that we use at the end of worship services. You know what a benediction is? It comes at the end uh, and it means... A good word, bena, means good diction, something spoken. So a benediction is not a prayer. That is, it isn't addressed from us to God, but it's a word given to us from God. It's spoken from him to us. And we're to really sort of take that upon ourselves and receive it and wear it, if you will, uh, as God's people. The classic uh, uh, benediction is in Numbers in chapter 6. Um, this is where benedictions, if you will, began in terms, of, in terms of the people of God. In Numbers in chapter 6, verse 22, um, we read this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, they would be the priests, of course. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then the next expression explains why that benediction, verse 27 says this So shall they, that is the priests, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And so, what a benediction is, is a word from God to remind us whose we are, that we take his name upon ourselves and we take that with us you know when a couple gets married part of the ritual at least used to be still is primarily is they take the same name they have the same name together and that identifies them as whose they are this is our family this is this is our name and so when the benediction comes from God it's a blessing upon his people It's a word spoken to them so that his name is forever upon them and they wear it and they know it and they live in the midst of that. And thus when the Lord says, I'll bless you and keep you, meaning my favor will be upon you and I'll be your keeper, I'll be your protector and I'll make my face to shine upon you. So wherever you are, you know that you're in my presence, you live in my glory. And the people of Israel were to live like that. That would be their blessing. Who else could say, God keeps me? Who else could say, God's face is upon me? And they were to walk around with their heads up, not arrogant, not proud in themselves, but secure and in peace because God was with them. And that's what a benediction is to do. And so... When the author of Hebrews comes to the end of his, of his message to them, he wants to speak a final word. He wants them to take something with them that in the whole context of everything he shared, he'll, they'll be able to wear it. And he says, Now, may the God of peace... See, I want you to know that the heart of God is to be at peace with you. He's the one who has made reconciliation between the two of you. And I want you to know that you're one, if you believe in Jesus, you're the one who lives in peace with him. Never forget that. Take that with you. No matter what else is happening, what is happening in the context of your life isn't because there's hostility between you and God. But know that in the midst of your life, there is peace. He's the God of peace. And he expresses that peace. He made that peace. I may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. He made a promise, a covenant that's eternal. It was made before the world was made. And it will never change. It's always been and always will be, if you will. It will never change. And that covenant, that promise is that he would be your God of peace. He would bring peace to you and he would do it through the blood of this covenant, making it sure and certain. And the very giver of this blood would be the Lord Jesus, who would pay the penalty for our sins, that reconciliation could be made, and that He would raise Him from the dead and say, See, it's real. He lives to be the guarantee of the eternal covenant. He lives because I've accepted His sacrifice on your behalf. And so He's the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus who is the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who's given his life and taken it back up again so he can live to intercede for us all the time. So that all the time he's there in heaven for us on our behalf. And in so doing and all of that, the promise to us is this. That the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, will equip you. right? Will f- make you fit. Will equip you with every good thing for doing His will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus, of course, because it's all on the basis of Him, and to His glory. All right. Two questions. Number one, why Does the author of Hebrews give us this particular benediction? I mean, if I would have been him by the end of this message, I would have stolen the one from number six. It seems to work quite nicely. But So why this one? Why does he speak under the inspiration of the Spirit, the power of God? Why does he speak this name of God upon us this way? Why this benediction? Then secondly, how does it bless us? And that's not a self-serving question. That's the precise question. The precise question when receiving a benediction is, how does this bless me? Because the purpose of God in providing, giving a benediction, is to bless us, to give us his name, that it would bless us, that it would make us happy, if you will. And so how does it bless us? Those two questions. This first. Why this particular benediction? Well, of course, uh, it fits with everything that he's been writing so far. Again, he comes to the end of his message and asks the question, what can I leave them with? What could I say now? And it's such a great blessing in the midst of that because you realize as we've been through uh, uh, this message for some time now, as we've worked our way through it, that this is not an easy word. I don't know about you, but over the last year and a half, I've been scorched quite a lot as I've read through and meditated upon and memorized and preached and listened to this preaching and all of that, I've been scorched many times because there's many, many warnings throughout this message. And it's not warnings to the world out there. It's warnings to people in the church. This will be read in the church. And he's saying to them, to us, to me, don't drift. Pay attention to what you've heard. Live it out. Don't, don't, don't let your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, don't just enjoy the benefits of being part of this church, part of the community of faith, uh, and, then, and then turn away. But, but hang in there and continue to live by faith, even though it may mean that, you might, that you're ostracized from your family or that that you're ostracized from the society or that you're marginalized at work or any of those kinds of things. And it could be, as they were, it could be that you're persecuted for your faith. It could be that you you, you receive persecution uh, economically or socially, politically. could mean all of that, but continue to live by faith. Don't stop. And now at the end of that, what is it that would be helpful for them to hear? What would be a blessing for them? And I think this, and I think this is the blessing of benedictions. They take our eyes and raise them up. They take our eyes off of us and put, it, put our eyes upon God to enable us to live as we should be living, and that is a God-centered, a God-focused life. Now, that doesn't mean... When we say we should live a God focused, a God centered life, it doesn't mean that, you know, that old expression that we should be so heavenly minded that then we're no earthly good. Of course, that's a stupid statement, if I could just say it that way. Um, because if you read through history, the most heavenly minded people have done the most good on the face of the earth. You just read through history and you'll find that the people whose focus of attention is upon God end up being the people who do the most good for others. It always works that way. Uh, Nor does it mean that we never think about ourselves. But what it does mean is that we think about ourselves and everything else in light of God, focusing our attention upon him. Our worship services in all shapes and sizes are are to reflect and to model for us this God-centeredness. That's why we worship the way that we do. We enter into worship and we sing together something about God, something that will call our attention upon him. So if you're not engaged in that first hymn because you're in the parking lot, (laughs) I love doing this to you, or you're out there somewhere, then you're missing it, you see. You're, You're missing that. You need to be here engaged in in the very beginning of all of that. And then a call to worship, uh, so that, again, to engage our minds upon God, to realize that it's God who's calling us to worship Him. And all that, and and this is the way it feels sometimes to me in my own life, is all that to drag me out of thinking about myself only in the context of my own life, and to raise me up, and say, stop looking down, look up. See who it is who exists, who's real God, and, and, and catch a glimpse of who he is this morning. We're singing about the power of his word, right? And his glory and majesty. So to lift us up out of that, and then, and then to hear a call to worship from Ephesians chapter 2, how we were dead in trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with, in Christ. You see, think about that. And then, and then just take a moment and realize, I'm in the presence of God. And then we do begin to think about ourselves. Because in our worship, then we begin to we confess our sins. And that isn't to focus our attention upon ourselves narrowly, but to focus our attention upon ourselves in light of God. It would be a scary thing to just think about my sin. It would be a scary thing, even if I didn't know God, especially if I didn't know God, to think about how unloving I can be, to think how phony I can be, to think of all the compassion that I lack in my life. And just to think about that, I'd be depressed. So we think about our sin in light of Christ. First, we think about our sin when we think of Christ because we realize how holy he is and how unholy we are. But then secondly, in the midst of all that, because we're thinking about our sin in, in light of God, then we're free. I love the little expression that the poet puts, one poet, old dead poet, puts it like this. I know my sin in all its greatness. But, big but, right? But also him who sets me free. And so we think about our sin in light of God. And then we're free to be real and genuine and authentic. We're not hiding anything from God. And then we can worship him, you see. That's the nature of all of this. And then our singing. The focus of our attention in singing is to be upon God. Now, sadly, for us, it's often upon us. Do I like this song? Don't I like this song? Can you dance to it? You know, I mean, all those kind of things. I give it a six. Uh, We think about whether we like this song or not. That that, that that really doesn't need to cross your mind. What needs to cross your mind is, what does God like about this song? As I express these words, and as we express these words together, what does God like about that? And you know what he likes about that, I think? He likes He likes the truth about himself, and he likes the fact that we're doing it together. The great danger for the church in the next decade, I think, is that, Music could split us by generations. So the younger people run off. I can't believe I say it like that. I used to be one of them. The younger people run off and sing one kind of way, and the older people run off and sing another kind of way. Uh, That's a bad thing for God. He doesn't like that. He wants all of us somehow together. And so if we can be God-centered in our worship, what that means is, my first consideration is, how can we... Little kids and younger people and older people and older still people. How can we worship together? And so we hope, too, that the preaching is God-centered. You see, the great danger for preachers is to give the congregation a a list of do's and don'ts. Because you follow Christ, here's what you need to do. And, And that's all right to do, but we need to do that in light of who God is to raise us above just what we're to do and to realize that he's equipping us and he's at work in us, enabling us because he saved us. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. If you were here for the call to worship, that was the end of it, Ephesians 2.10, right? So, so that's important, to, to raise us up to raise our eyes. And all our worship services should do that. Weddings should do that. Marriage worship services could do that. People ask me to do their wedding. I say, don't do weddings. I do worship services in which people are married, right? And so the focus of attention of a wedding is to be upon God, not on the couple. They get the rehearsal dinner. They get the reception. They get the rest of their lives. But in that moment... The focus of attention is upon God. He's going to do something. He instituted marriage. We need to realize that. We live under him. And he's the only one who can really join someone together as husband and wife. And so we need to recognize that. So we come to do that. Funerals. The focus of attention should be upon God. Right? And I say this with all due respect. Not on the dead person. No, we need to pay honor to the dead person. We have opportunities to do that. But there comes a moment, you see, when the people of God gather that our focus of our attention is to, be upon, is to be upon God, to think about who he is, the Lord over life and death. He's the significant one at a funeral service. And so our worship in all of its shapes and sizes and all of its contexts, is to model for us how to live a God-centered life, how to always have a fo- the focus of our attention upon Him so that we see ourselves in light of Him and not apart from Him. All right? And you see, that's what a benediction does for us. What a benediction does for us is that it, it encourages us to see everything in light of God. It, it draws our eyes to Him. I think I was first made aware of this way of life, um, gosh, it's been decades now. I can't believe I can say 25 years ago. But but I remember, and I've shared this story before, I remember reading many, many years ago through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I was at a particular point in my life uh, where I, I needed to grow up. And so I was reading through the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over again. And I read where I was to be poor in spirit. And I read what I was to mourn over my sin. And I read what I was to be meek. And I read what I was to be a peacemaker. When I read that I was to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And I read that even if I was going to be persecuted, I should rejoice in that. I read that I should be salt and light in the world. I read that I should not be... Uh, I shouldn't murder, but not only that, I shouldn't be angry. Uh, I read, read, not only should I not divorce my wife, but I should not lust after another. Uh, I read all these things about who I was to be. And I read it over and over again. And the more I read, the more depressed I got. Uh, because I wasn't reading chapter 7 as I should. Because the way Jesus brings that sermon at least in part to a close, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for a bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, uh, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And when I finally read that, in light of everything else, I went, phew. He's telling me who I'm to be. He's telling me what I'm to do. And so then he says, now, Bill, this will characterize your life. I would expect him to say doing, but he doesn't say that. He says, this will characterize your life. Praying. Why? Because he'll help me. You say, this is the person you're to be. Now your position is on your knees. And so, I don't want you to think you're on your own just to go do this. I want you to ask your whole life, ask to be this kind of person. Your whole life, I want you to seek me in prayer that I will make you this kind of person. And I want you to knock all the time. I want you to keep after me. God says, after me, after me, after me. And trust me, I'm a good father. You know? And he looks at me and he says, Bill, you who are evil can do good things for your children. (laughs) How much more? I am perfect i will do good things for you. So if you ask me for this, I won't give you a stone. If you ask for this, I won't give you a serpent. If you ask for this, I'll give you the Holy Spirit to help you. Oh yes, that's it. It's so easy for us to get buried, isn't it? It's so easy for us to get buried under the things of life, whether it's a circumstance or whether it's our own sin. And we get buried under there. And we can't see out and so a benediction comes and says, ah, now the God of peace. He'll equip you. Raise your eyes up. Uh, which one is it? 1 First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Paul, at the end of this message, puts it like this. It says, now may, the God, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Okay, I'm not into tattoos, but if you've got to get one, that should be it, I think. All right? There you go. Well, you get that. Any, anywhere you can see it. Don't get it in those funny places where nobody can see it. If you get this one, Now get it where you can see it, all right? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He's commanded you to follow him, to live by faith in Christ. And you go, how can I do that? There's so much against me. He is faithful. This one who calls you to live like that. He will surely do it. If you're looking in the mirror, you're sunk. If you're looking at yourself, you're sunk in the midst of that. And so he says, don't look there. Look to the one who calls you. He's the faithful one. He's the one who'll do it. Always wear that. Always have that name upon you. The very presence of God uh, with you. This this God-centered life. Um, I think of Jehoshaphat. He's one of my favorite people in all the Bible. I think of him all the time. In the one little rhyme in all the New International Version uh, uh, translation of the Bible. Jehoshaphat, King of Israel, enemies all around him. He looks at his enemies, he looks at his armies, and he's sunk. He knows that he has no power to to save his people at that point. and so he goes and he seeks the Lord, he prays, he meditates upon God. And at the end of all of that, he says to the Lord with the people, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And if you know that story, you know that then Jehoshaphat is victorious. But you see, that's the point, again, of a benediction. Not to place our eyes upon ourselves, but to place our eyes upon God and then to see everything else in light of Him. That's what we're to do. Now, notice this: how this particular benediction goes. So we say, what's the blessing, first blessing? is that it takes our eyes up off ourselves and puts our eyes upon God. And now look at, at what it says to us about God. Now may the God of peace... He's the God of peace. That means He's the one who makes reconciliation. You might remember... The story of Gideon. Gideon was an Old Testament person in the book of Judges when Israel was still governed by people called Judges. Gideon was one of those. And, and Israel was in a position at that point in time that they were very weak. In fact, the way that we meet Gideon it is, is that he's threshing grain in his wine press. Now, you would expect him to be making wine in his wine press, but he's not. He's taking the grain from the field, bringing it into the wine press and threshing it. The reason he's doing that is because he's afraid. He needs to thresh his grain uh, in a secret place where the Midianites who are around him can't see him do that. Because if they saw him do that, like the bullies they were, they would come and get his grain. So he's threshing his grain in a secret, private place. All of a sudden, the angel of the Lord shows up in the midst of that and says, oh, Gideon, you great, strong man of valor. And I think Gideon's looking around for anybody else named Gideon here. Uh, and, um, and the angel of the Lord, and, and so Gideon then responds to the angel of the Lord and saying, well, if God is with us, then, then why are we like this? Why is all of this going on? And the angel of the Lord says, God is with you. You'll be victorious. And so he says, give me a sign. And so Gideon runs out and gets some food, brings it in, gives it to the angel, puts it down, and poof, it's consumed. He goes, okay, it's cool. Uh, I, I get it. But then he gets very scared. And he gets very scared because he realizes that he's been in the presence of God. And then God comes to him, the Lord comes to him and speaks to himself, be at peace, don't be afraid. And so at that point, Gideon erects a little monument and he calls the Lord like this. He says, the Lord is peace. That is, I don't need to be afraid of him. When the Lord comes and cleanses, when the Lord comes and forgives, when the Lord comes and calls, ah, he brings reconciliation. And so there's peace. And so what we need to realize as we walk around all the time is that he is the God of peace. Peace. He's the one who's brought reconciliation. And that's great news to us. Because naturally speaking, there isn't peace between us and God. There's hostility between us and God. Both from His perspective and from our perspective. From His perspective, this hostility is because of His righteousness and holiness and our sin. And because of our sin, then that puts us at odds with Him, makes us enemies of God. And is. Paul wrote, as I read in our call to worship this morning, naturally speaking, we're objects of his wrath because he's holy and just and we've offended him deeply by our rebellion against him. And then, of course, we don't really care for him all that much either. We'd rather go our own way than go his way. And so it suits us fine for him to be angry with us and overhear, and We'll just go that way. The problem is that since he's the sovereign God of the universe, he isn't ever away from us, and a day of reckoning will come. And so the author of Hebrews says, Now I want, to, I want you to wear this. He's the God of peace. He desires peace and reconciliation. In fact, he's brought it in Jesus through him. That is, he made a covenant And as I said a few moments ago, it's an eternal covenant, which means he made it before you were even born, so your birth couldn't mess it up. Right? He made it before you even sinned, so your sin couldn't mess up that eternal covenant. He made a promise that through Jesus, he would save all those who trusted in Jesus. He would save all those who were his. He would save, as the angel put it, his people from their sins. That's this eternal covenant. And he did it through Jesus Christ. And of course he did it through Jesus. Because Jesus was the, the perfect representative for us taking our sin and all that. You know this. This is, this is the guts of the gospel. That Jesus took our sin upon himself. And he died our death, our penalty. And then he rose again from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, it told us a number of things. It told us that God has accepted his sacrifice. It told us that his sacrifice was sufficient. Because if it wasn't, he would have stayed dead If he had to pay for his own sins, he would have stayed dead. He would have stayed dead. But he didn't pay for his own sins. He paid for our sins. And so once he paid the penalty in full, he was free to go. And thus he was raised from the dead. And in being raised from the dead, it says there's life in him. Trust him. Don't trust yourself. Trust him. Put your eyes upon him. Not upon yourself. Trust him. And so the God of peace, he brought reconciliation, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. He lives forever. He didn't die and go away. He he lives forever to be our great shepherd, to watch over us all the time to guarantee that his promises will be fulfilled. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant and then this promise. Equip you with every good thing through doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The guarantee, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not because you're so good, not because you're so great, not because you've earned all of this, not because you've done any of that, but it's going to be through Jesus. Our dependence is upon him. And I just go, whew, all right. Now notice he says he's going to equip us with every good thing for doing his will. He has a will. He has a purpose for us. He's going to work in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. His will is that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And we know his will. We know that which pleases him because he lays it out for us in the scripture, in his precepts, in his commands. As we read over the, 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 the Bible, we see his will for us. And most especially, we know what will pleases him. It's his very own son, of whom he said, in whom I am well pleased. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all. We realize that God's will for us is that he would conform us to the image of his son. Because he pleases him infinitely. And he pleases him perfectly and so what God's about in the context of our lives, His will for us is that He conforms us to the image of His Son, that we desire to do His will as His Son did, that our, our, our meat and drink is to do the will of our Father. That's what He desires in us. And so He's going to equip us for that, and He's going to work that into us. And it's so important to realize that He's working it in us. He's not just giving us a list of laws and a list of do's and don'ts. But he's taking all of that and he's working that in us. That's the great blessing of this new covenant that we've been reading about in Hebrews. You remember back in Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 8? He writes, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And now he's quoting out of the prophet Jeremiah. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. That's working in us. See, the great benefit we have in the new covenant part of the eternal covenant is that he puts his law, writes them, puts them right into our minds, writes them on our hearts. It's not just an external thing that we read and go, oh man, it'd be nice to be able to do that. But He changes the inclinations of our hearts. So when we see that law, we go, yes. And He works in us by His Spirit to do that. So I put my law into their minds, I'll write on their hearts, I will be their God, they shall be my people, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins. No more. I don't work in them. The prophet Ezekiel, you remember, how he put it. He said, I'll take out their heart of stone. Ezekiel chapter 36. I'll take out their heart of stone and I'll put in a heart of flesh. That's a warm one, a beating one, an alive one. Take out their heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. And I will cause them to walk in my statutes. He'll work in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And we get to the New Testament, and we see how that works. We see Jesus meets with this guy, Nicodemus, and he says, Nicodemus, uh, in order to see the kingdom of God, you need to be born from above. Nicodemus is all confused about that, thinking, ah, it's all birth metaphors, really messing me up. I can't even imagine going back into my mother's womb. Jesus says, don't go there. This is a spiritual thing. I'm talking about spiritual birth. I'm talking about a work of the Holy Spirit. The way Jesus puts it, he says, you know, when you look outside on a windy day uh, and you see the leaves sort of shake, you know the wind is blowing. I just drove to Denver this week and back and, and my car kept going boom, boom, boom. And Karen, my dear wife, kept looking, you falling asleep? She asked me that a hundred times. And I said, no, it's windy out there. And she said, well, how do you know? And I looked out, and I didn't see anything. And I go, I I can't show you. (laughs) There's nothing here that's blowing. Finally, we got to a place where there was something. And I said, see that? It's blowing. That's the wind that's shaking the car. And and, and Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, "Um, that's how you know when something happens. You know when you believe in Jesus that something's happened. You know, when you come to faith, something's happened. You know, this this new life has come into you because you repent and believe. That's it. That's the wind blowing. That's Him working in us. uh, The way... I don't need to go there. And He equips us, you see. He changes our hearts on the inside and He works strength into us on the inside. uh, The way Paul puts it in Galatians. In chapter 4, verse 19, he speaks of these people for whom he says, I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And then later on in Galatians chapter 5, we see the formation of Christ in us. As he puts it, the metaphor he uses is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in you and he's changed your roots He's changed your soil in your heart. He's changed all of that. So now what will grow in you is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. The very fruit of the Spirit. So when we see that, we go, Oh yeah, that's God at work in me. And he says, therefore, he's going to equip you with every good thing for doing his will. How does he equip us? He changes the very guts of our being. He changes the inclinations of our hearts. He's working on the inside by the Holy Spirit and equips us by giving us various means by which we're equipped. For instance, he gives us his word. You know this, 2 Timothy, uh, in chapter 3. Paul puts it like this. He says to Timothy, his son, in the faith, he says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Uh, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. He says, All right, I've changed your heart and I've given you my word. Those two things resonate. You see? And when you hear the word, it works in you because the Holy Spirit is working in you and it's the same Holy Spirit who wrote the word. And so, here you have it. And so, this word, as we learn the scripture, as we meditate upon the scripture, as we live out the scripture, you see, he's equipping us to do his will, to please him. And as we're doing that, we're increasingly becoming conformed uh, to the image of Christ. Peter puts it like this in Second Peter And chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from corruption, from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, that's a mouthful, obviously. But he's saying this, that one of the means that God uses, the primary means that God uses, are these very great and precious promises. And it's through them that we escape the world and escape these evil desires, meaning that he's conforming us to the image of his dear Son. We're partaking of the divine nature. It doesn't mean we're becoming divine, but it means... And we're becoming more and more like Jesus, the one who does the will of his Father. Jesus' high priestly prayer, he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You see, a means that God uses to equip us. And so, as the people of God, he'll work in us a desire to study his word. He'll work in us a hunger for his word. And, of course, we pray. We pray that he will equip us. We pray that he will work us for in, in us. For instance, in Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 14, uh, Paul prays this prayer for the church in Ephesus. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Another mouthful. But you see, we're to pray. That's one of the ways that he equips us. Pray that God will work all of this in us. We spend so much of our time, and this is not a bad thing, we spend so much of our time praying for our health and our wealth. That's not a bad thing. I just came from Denver. I got a dear friend, as you know, with a brain tumor, had surgery, and spent three days praying with him and his wife. Almost the whole time, it seems. But we need to pray for our holiness. We need to pray that we'll be so inclined to do the will of God. We need to pray for our own personal holiness, that God will work that in us and that that would be our heart's desire. So his word, prayer, certainly meditation, fellowship together. The author of Hebrews says one of the ways that he equips us is that we're to encourage each other as long as it's called today. When I get up this morning, it was today. Right? We get up tomorrow, it's going to be today. We get, up, if we get up the next day, it's going to be today. So, as long as it's called today, we need to encourage each other. And that's the, the need of community, the need of fellowship. If we get ourselves off by ourselves, God isn't equipping us in the same way. And what he'll have to do, and this, happens, this has happened to many of you uh, in weeks recently or months recently or years recently you can look back and say I was estranged from the community of God, from the the church and and God put this desire in me to get back and and here I am and and it's necessary and when, when he gives you that desire to get back in what he's saying to you is you need to be equipped with every good thing for doing my will this is how I'm going to equip you in the midst of this suffering and discipline equips us you remember when we walked our way through Hebrews in chapter 12. Uh, verse 10 says this. For they, that is our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines for our go- us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And so we need to understand that every bit of difficulties that we go through Is God equipping us? Uh, Working in us that which is well pleasing in his sight. And so as I come to the end of, of Hebrews, we're not quite done yet. We have one little benediction to go at the end. But but as we come here, this is this is that word that says, All right, you know who you're supposed to be. You know what you're supposed to do as followers of Christ. You're to live by faith, you're to hang on and continue to persevere. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look up. I want you to focus your gaze upon him. So let me ask you to stand up. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this is out of order. He's supposed to pray first. But I'm not going to. I'm going to benedict you. And I want you to receive this benediction. Now the response to it is this. Glory be to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Because you see, when he tells us to raise our eyes, to see the God of peace and so forth, he's doing this through Jesus and it's in him. He's the one who's going to be glorified in our lives because God the Father is conforming us to his image. And so you see, what what heaven's going to be populated with is a bunch of of little Jesuses, a bunch of ones who look like, by that time, in the fullness of our being, who are conformed to 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 the image of this man, Jesus Christ, who are able to please him. And he'll look at each one of us directly and say, I'm pleased with you. I'm pleased with you, and I'm pleased with you. So it's all to his glory, you see. Now please receive this as God's benediction. Wear his name. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Glory be to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.